Thank you all very much for coming, and especially those of you who've come from as far away as South London, some of my colleagues, it's very nice of you to, to, to make the trek, and uh, others who've come from nearer and could be spending a pleasant evening outside enjoying the late sunshine. So I do appreciate that. I'd also like to thank the committee for uh, the honour of, of being asked to be the fourth Mary Douglas Memorial Lecturer. When I got a phone call last year from David Gellner <clears throat> issuing the invitation, I asked the obvious question, why me? And he said, well, it's really for two reasons. At least these are the two reasons he gave me. Of course, there may have been others that I wasn't told about. <laughs> One was because I'd worked on some of the same issues as Mary Douglas, and the other was that I must have known her all my professional life. Of course, I knew of her and her work, but I didn't know her at all well as a person. In fact, I only had four encounters with Mary Douglas, and two of these were somewhat unfortunate. In 1973, the London Women's Anthropology Group, of which I was a founder member, held its first open workshop and attracted a large audience. One of the panels was a discussion about whether the gender of the author made a difference to the writing of ethnography. Douglas's 1963 monograph, already mentioned by Steve Rayner, The Lele of the Kasai, which was based on her first fieldwork in the Congo, was one of the examples we used, and we'd invited its author to attend. She was not pleased with the comments on her book, or indeed with the workshop as a whole, telling us that we got everything completely wrong. I believe she left rather early. As her intellectual biographer Richard Farden later noted, she did not have a feminist agenda, although paradoxically her work has influenced much feminist writing on the body. A year after this workshop, I was applying for jobs in and around the London area, and University College London, where Mary <clears throat> was teaching at the time, had a vacancy. They called me for interview, but my heart sank when I realised that she was going to be the main interviewer. She asked me which anthropologists had influenced me the most. I replied rather lamely, I didn't have a favourite anthropologist. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I didn't get the job but went to Goldsmiths instead. When I was preparing this lecture, I found an account in a blog about Douglas's time in America after she'd left her first post at the Russell Sage Foundation. She gave a talk on the meaning of meals at the University of Chicago. At that time, it was looking for a preferably female anthropologist to fill a vacant post. A clever clogs postgrad asked her, what exactly was the meaning of meaning? And it was reported that Douglas did not answer the question very well and did not get the job. And I had to confess to being relatedly comforted by finding that even she too could sometimes be at a loss. It's very odd how these things stick in your memory, even after 50 years. <clears throat> Some years later, Mary and I were on the same platform talking to an audience of London postgrads, and afterwards she came across and greeted me and said, in effect, Pax Orbiscum. I gave her a lift back to Highgate, and on the way she talked about her North London home of many years. And on the strength of this rapprochement, I invited her to give a paper at a goldsmith seminar series I was about to run on risk. 
This was a very trendy topic in the 1990s and one on which she had published extensively. I think there are uh, three books on risk and some papers. She looked at me and said rather witheringly, I assume you mean risk perception. I was properly put in my place yet again uh, and said yes, that was indeed what we proposed to discuss, hoping that she'd be tempted. However, she said she was much too busy with her Old Testament work. Uh, as Steve has said, the subject of much of her later writing, so she never did contribute to our seminar series. Although I did send her a copy of the book and I turned up a copy of my letter to her that I had sent along with the book when I was preparing this lecture. Yet while I may not have known Mary Douglas very well on a personal level, I certainly could not fail to know and use at least some of her work, both in uh, teaching and in writing particularly that on food, on economics and consumption, as well as risk and blame. And I'll be referring to all of these things in this lecture. Her writings on the drawing of boundaries and the perceived danger from without also remains highly relevant today, with the othering of many categories in UK society, including so-called scroungers, those on benefits and those who, who go to food banks, of whom I'll, I'll talk more anon. In her publications, Douglas often drew examples from her early Congo fieldwork, and she made free use of ethnographic examples from other anthropologists. But interestingly, she didn't do much further fieldwork abroad, but this did not stop her, as we know, from producing an unusually large number of books and articles. On rereading some of the work with which I was already familiar, as well as some with which I was not, I was struck by the extent to which she succeeded in turning herself into an anthropologist of Western society, which is exactly a point that Steve just made. Doing anthropology at home is perhaps the most difficult kind, because while the business of anthropologists is to understand others, it's arguably more difficult to understand ourselves. But that was what she set out to do, keeping a sharp eye on whatever was around her, drawing upon the everyday and the mundane. The other thing that struck me was her willingness to step outside the boundaries of anthropology and work with and publish with non-anthropologists in a discipline in which the lone anthropologist as hero or heroine was the norm at that time. This was quite unusual. Finally, of note is the extent to which she communicated her findings and analyses to a wide audience, often outside of anthropology, and was reviewed by people outside the discipline. I was amazed to see how many different uh, journals and regular publications she'd put her work into. In this lecture, I'll be making use of some of Douglas's ideas, but especially focusing on food, a topic on which she started writing at an early stage and to which she returned regularly. As she noted in 1977, food is never just feed. Food encompasses ideas of purity and pollution, of order and patterning, morality and entitlement. It's about shopping, consumption and much more. But it's also primarily about social relations and particularly reciprocity. In the past few years, my own research has been on food poverty or food insecurity and food aid in the UK. And my overall aim here today is to use these topics as a window into the current state of our own and other societies, seeking to address the fundamental question, what constitutes a good society and how may we best achieve it? 
or rather, how we may, may we discuss it? Do we, as suggested by the late Zygmunt Bauman, attempt to, quote, see the world through the eyes of society's weakest members and then tell anyone honestly that our society is a good, civilized, advanced and free? Or do we follow the dictum of Tawny, who stated long ago that, quote, what thoughtful rich people call the problem of poverty, thoughtful poor people call with equal justice the problem of riches? In my view, we need to do both, as I will attempt in this presentation. At this current moment in UK and world history, with its new political landscapes, myriad crises and accelerating pace of change, it seems like we need to address such issues urgently. Since so many of the established certainties have been overturned, there's a heightened sense of what Bauman, even a decade ago, called liquid fear and what some more recent commentators have termed the age of anger. For many, it feels like, as the African novelist Chinua Achebe put it half a century ago, things fall apart, and never more in the UK than at this moment this week. Yet we cannot begin to deal with all of this unless we first have some glimmers of understanding. And in this lecture, I'll attempt to search for them by following the well-known dictum of Lévi-Strauss, that food is bon à penser, good to think with. My current work on food poverty is not my first foray into doing anthropology at home. In the 1990s, I conducted a large research project on concepts of healthy eating, with fieldwork carried out in the London borough of Lewisham, South London, and the county of Pembrokeshire in West Wales. Prior to this, I'd worked on food topics in both Tanzania and South India, so was cognizant of some of the debates around food security in those places. But it was only around 2014 that I became aware that food insecurity was becoming an increasingly significant issue in Britain, that food banks were being established and their number growing rapidly. I read some of the numerous reports from organisations which included Oxfam and Save the Children, uh, organisations that I'd been more used to thinking of as working in the global south, not here, and also the publications of academics like Riches, Dowler and Carragher, who were already working in the field and became increasingly shocked. As a result of this, I started a part-time research project based in two areas where I now spend most of my time, the North London borough of Barnet, an urban conurbation obviously, and the mainly rural Pembrokeshire in West Wales. This research involved visiting places which produce various forms of food aid, notably food banks, but also other venues like affordable community cafes, soup kitchens, interviews <coughs> and soup kitchens. Conduct I conducted interviews and distributed questionnaires, but not surprisingly, some of the most interesting insights came serendipitously from hanging around, attending meetings and serving as a volunteer. In other words, practicing what anthropologists call participant observation. As I went on with my research, I found that other scholars from cognate disciplines <coughs> were also working in this area. Some were working at the micro level, like the social geographer Kayleigh Garthwaite's excellent study, Hunger Pains, of a single food bank in Yorkshire, sometimes using big data. In fact, there's now a whole cohort of young scholars working around the issue of food poverty, although curiously, they're not anthropologists for the most part. 
If anybody knows of them, perhaps they can tell me afterwards. In the next two sections of this lecture, I'll consider the rise of food poverty and the various forms of food aid which attempt to address it, focusing specifically on food banks and their clients, trustees, donors and volunteers. This will be followed by a discussion of the anthropological relevance of gifting and reciprocity in the context of this kind of food aid. In the second part of this lecture, I move to a closer investigation of another important donor of food aid in the UK, the food industry, and seek to analyse the complex relations between its waste or surplus and the feeding of those who cannot afford to buy sufficient food. Along the way, there will be a further discussion of gifting, including in the context of corporate social responsibility. In the final section, I consider some of the implications of the current situation of food poverty and food aid in the UK, particularly in relation to wider concerns of social policy and politics, and changes in the formal and informal contracts between the state at all levels, the private sector, and the voluntary or third sector. Consideration of these involves not only the complex relations between them, but also the reconstitution of the good and moral citizen. As, as one who helps the community, often performing tasks which were previously the domain of the state. This is an important underlying theme in what I have to say, so let me illustrate it. There has been a rise of so-called champions at local authority level, of which some of you may already be aware. Two years ago, just after a period of snowy weather, I got a letter from my local council, the London Borough of Barnet, inviting me to become a street champion. Being a street champion would involve keeping grit, salt and sand at our house and organising its spreading in the street when necessary. In return, I would get some shovels. <laughs> Annoyed, I threw the letter in the bin, recycle of course, so when I remembered this incident when I was writing this lecture, I had to look it up and discovered that today many local councils utilise this concept of champions, even heroes. They litter pick, they take care of parks, run libraries, swimming pools, deliver council newsletters and so on. So what's going on here and why? Now if I can get this thing to work, I can show you a picture. You might think it's a Christmas card. But actually, it's not. It's an article in The Independent in January 2015, and it's about street champions. So you see, I could have been in that photo if I'd only replied to the letter. <laughs> so what's going on here and why? <clears throat> At this point, I should perhaps declare something of my position, since these days anthropologists are exhorted to take account of their own views of the world. While we anthropologists make much use of a comparative method to challenge notions of universal normality, people of my generation have an additional basis for comparison based on our own past histories and the times through which we've lived. In my own case, born during World War II, I lived through the setting up of a welfare state in the UK under which all citizens were deemed to be covered from cradle to grave this included the right to unemployment and sickness benefit, free health care and free education, up to and including university. No student loans for us. And we considered this state of affairs was normal and right. 
This situation of entitlement began to change during the time of Margaret Thatcher, whom you remember famously declared there's no such thing as society, only individuals, not a dictum with which Douglas, or I for that matter, would have agreed, but which has nonetheless continued to resonate powerfully. In the UK, as elsewhere in the world, inequality has not only widened, but there's a significant and growing minority of the population which is officially below the poverty line. Numbers are, of course, dependent on the measures used, but in the UK they hover around 10 to 13 million people, and are projected, the numbers are projected to rise. Such poverty may, of course, include food insecurity, which is unsurprising, because food is the most elastic part of the budget, and priority, when means are tight, is likely to be given to those items which risk the bailiffs, that is to say rent, council tax and energy bills. There have been recent reports of people suffering from malnutrition requiring hospitalisation and even of a few deaths from malnutrition <coughs> starvation in the UK 21st century. Um, this is from uh, a newspaper in Wales um, and it's diagnosed with malnutrition overdependence on food banks. The reasons for the rise in food poverty are very complex. Um, these are some of the factors that well, I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with. But I'll just mention here that not only have wages and job security for many decreased or remained static, but the level of benefits has also shrunk. And furthermore, access to benefits, entitlement has also changed, as anyone who's seen the film I, Daniel Blake will be aware Alongside such a situation, public views on poverty have also changed considerably over the last few years, as research by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation shows. As it mentions in one of its annual reports, public awareness of the extent and reality of poverty is limited, and many people see it as the individual's responsibility to get out of poverty, because they, that is members of the public, are not aware of the obstacles to achieving this. So spending more money on social welfare is nowadays deeply unpopular with many voters and it's scarcely surprising that entitlements to benefits may also be widely questioned. If, as Mary Douglas maintained, perception is crucial, public notions of poverty are scarcely surprising given the tendency of much of the media to talk about scrounging or sponging rather than entitlement as a citizen. So what kind of help is available? There are many forms of food aid currently operating in the UK today, but as I said, I'm going to emphasise initially that many people who run into difficulties with their household budgets first turn to kin. We hear an awful lot um, among the middle classes about the bank of mum and dad, it's the only way you can get housed. But in my observations on one of Barnett's rapidly disappearing council estates, I found there was a lot of kin solidarity and solidarity between the generations, especially mothers and daughters. Other forms of food aid include soup kitchens, lunch clubs for children or older people, affordable cafes and hot meals served at community centres and homeless shelters. Although I visited a number of these in both research locations, some of them several times, it's on food banks that I'm going to focus here. Many food banks, as I'm sure many of you know, are affiliated to the Trussell Trust, which is a Christian organisation 
although not all of those involved in its activities profess any faith. Trussell set up its first food bank in the UK in 2000. Today, it has well over 400 food banks with around 40,000 volunteers. Local food banks set themselves up and then have to pay a fee to Trussell to be affiliated, and for that they get a kind of quality assurance, monitoring, training, and a web page. Clients who visit Trussell Trust food banks have to use a voucher, and they have to get the voucher from the Citizens Advice Bureau, social worker, job centre, doctor, etc. There are also a number of food banks which are not affiliated to Trussell, including some organised by Muslims, one of which I've been following in Brent, just outside my, uh, my boundaries, but I particularly wanted to look at this. Uh, <clears throat> and independent food banks... Independent food banks are more difficult to quantify, but they may well constitute an equivalent number. In Pembrokeshire, for example, there are four Trussell food banks and four independent ones. In Pembrokeshire, there are um, four Trussell ones and three independent. Trussell says that its help is for emergencies only, and it will provide food parcels for three days for no more than three times in six months. Furthermore, the food which is given out tends to be long life, packets, bottles and tins, and very few are able to provide fresh food, <coughs> since they rarely have <coughs> their own premises but operate out of church halls for the most part. Donations of food come from a wide variety of sources. School collections at harvest festival time, you don't take fruit into harvest festivals anymore, you take tins and packets weekly or fortnightly offerings from local churches and synagogues and from individuals putting food into supermarket collection bins. Sorry, that slide's got into the wrong place. But anyway, this map here gives you some idea of the kind of reach of um, uh, the Trussell Trust. And like I said, there's probably equally as many uh, independent food banks. This is a typical food parcel. And the choice that you get when you go in, the only choice is you're asked, do you prefer tea or coffee? Do you prefer pasta or rice? And uh, some food banks have now started asking, do you have any cooking facilities at all? And if you don't, you're given what's called a cold parcel, which means food that can be eaten without any heating or cooking. And some of them also ask, do you have a tin opener? And, if you do, and lots of food banks now stock tin openers and, and give them out to... <coughs> clients, especially people who are, um, who are living on the street. Let's look now at the army of volunteers on which food banks depend. They fulfil a wide variety of roles, sitting on boards, organising committees, setting up rotors to collect food, weigh, label by date and store food or make up the food parcels suitable for different types of household, because obviously if you're in a bigger household, you need more food than if you're a, a single person. Running a food bank is rather like running a small business, whose operations are very labour-intensive. But as one trustee of a food bank maintained its effective inefficiency. As I mentioned earlier, many volunteers whom I interviewed in both geographical areas were practising Christians and felt that their faith demanded that the poor should be fed. But others did not attend church or practise any religion, but they still felt that, as many put it, it was disgraceful that in 21st century Britain, quote, one of the richest countries in the world, a phrase I heard many times, people couldn't afford to eat properly. 
and so their own common human decency required them to do something about it. So how can we analyse this? In her introduction to Jessica Cooper's anthropologist cookbook, which was published in 1977, Douglas stated, rather pressingly, I think, as follows. Giving food is the easiest and cheapest form of charity, and it pleases the producers. But that would hardly explain its prestige as the noblest form of almsgiving. What about the undoubted fact that it's the least radical solution to the problems of poverty? It's far harder to reorganise society so that those who are excluded can be brought back into the system of reciprocal exchange. Voting to give food <coughs> is of its essence a non-reciprocal gesture. It ensures the poor will always be there on the outside. So can we analyse the transactions at a food bank in terms of classic anthropological works on gifts and reciprocity? As the French anthropologist Marcel Mauss taught us long ago, giving has rules. A gift should not be refused or criticised, never look a gift horse in the mouth, and should also be reciprocated. So is the food given away a free gift, in other words, one given with no thought of exchange or reward, or rather, is it part of a system of reciprocity? In 1950, Mary Douglas wrote an introduction to Levi Strauss's book on the gift. And here she argued there are no such things as free gifts. But in 1977, uh, more than a quarter of a century later, she noted that people who are in receipt of food aid are outside the circle of reciprocity precisely because they appear to get something for nothing, while the givers perform a non-reciprocal gesture. <coughs> so how does this work out in practice? As I've already mentioned, clients of food banks have to prove their entitlement by demonstrating extreme need. Many feel great shame in going to food banks, and some even travel outside their area to make sure they're not seen by people who know them. This is unsurprising, since getting food from a food bank is not at all like buying at a supermarket. Not only is it given out for free, but there's very little choice, which is what consumers normally expect and the range is very restricted, as I've shown you. Having no choice is an important form of exclusion in the affluent society. And indeed, a few clients jib at this. For example, I've heard of clients saying, I want Waitrose stuff, not Tesco value. <laughs> or refusing to take certain items because I wouldn't eat that. Such views could displease the volunteers who might ask themselves and each other. Sotovoce, of course. Is this person really in need? <clears throat> However, some of my findings run counter to the contention that the giving of food in this way is non-reciprocal. Since many food bank clients felt strongly that they did want to give back as soon as they could and repay the help that they had received. For example, one day I was in a London food bank when a young woman appeared with several heavy bags of shopping she thrust it at the, um, the volunteer and said, this is for the food bank and it's because you helped my dad when he was down on his luck. We want to repay. What about the givers, whether of food, time or money? Do volunteers or donors obtain any form of reward from their unpaid gifts and labour? Ostensibly not. Yet many of them spoke of the intangible rewards they obtained, which included statements like, I feel I'm giving back, I'm making a contribution. I'm acquiring new skills and spending time with others and making new friends. 
Uh, this is the interior of a typical food bank store with uh, lots of labels telling you what the dates are and uh, what each um, box contains. Uh, and this is um, food which is actually given out for free. There's an awful lot of surplus bread around, as I'll come on to say in a moment. Some of the religious volunteers also quoted Bible verses that suggested God would look upon their work with favour. You'll get your reward in heaven was a, a phrase I heard more than once. In other words, their volunteering was not, it could be argued, a totally free gift. Douglas states quite rightly that in a market economy, having enough money is the basis of entitlement to goods and services. But she was writing at a time when the contract between the state, market and citizens was quite unlike it is today. And she could not perhaps have foreseen the present situation of austerity which has led to acute poverty, even destitution in the UK. But let me turn now to another component of this issue, and that is developments in the food industry and its links with charitable giving. Steve Rayner, in his introduction, talking about Mary Douglas, quoted one of her most famous early books, Purity and Danger. And no one who's read that book ever looks inside a dustbin in quite the same way again. <laughs> Dirt is matter out of place, and so is leftover food. We're uneasily aware that food waste should not exist, but an efficient system should ensure that we produce and consume only what we need and want. But we don't seem able to do that. So waste, like dirt, has to be dealt with. Waste occurs at all stages of the production, distribution and consumption process. But for the purposes of this lecture, I'll mention only three areas. Domestic waste, restaurant catering waste and retail. Let me deal very briefly with the first, <coughs> which is actually the largest category, although most people are unaware of this. As a child, I would be sent out with a plateful of food waste mainly potato peelings, to be put in the pig bins which were placed in each street during and after the Second World War. When I was researching this lecture, I came across a poem um, which was put out by the Ministry of Food during World War II. This is how it goes. Because of the pail, the scraps were saved. Because of the scraps, the pigs were saved. Because of the pigs, the rations were saved. Because of the rations, the ships were saved. Because of the ships, the island was saved. Because of the island, the empire was saved. And all because of the housewives' pail. So as you can see, by trotting out with my plate of potato peelings to the pig bin, I was actually saving the empire. <laughs> In UK households today, where the largest quantity of food waste is generated, perhaps a third of that purchase is thrown away. And after the ravages of animal diseases like BSE and foot and mouth, the reuse of untreated domestic food waste to feed farm animals is forbidden in Europe. So, alas, no more pig's will and pig bins um, in the street. Uh, I did have another anecdote about restaurant food waste, but I don't think I've got time because it's, it's marching on, maybe in the question period. Wholesalers and retailers generate considerable amounts of surplus which can't be sold, and it can't be sold either because it's imperfect. Um, this, is, this illustrates uh, what I talked about earlier, which is you've probably seen these in whatever supermarket you use to make food in store today. And this is collecting uh, these volunteers from the Trossel Trust collecting outside the store, which they're allowed to do um, twice a year. 
and this is the task that I must say I hated most when I was a volunteer, uh, sorting by date, because um, as any of you are actually careful about your dates, it's very hard to find dates on tins and bottles and packets. They all seem to be in different places, or they're completely illegible. Um, more sorting. Uh, and this one I think illustrates quite nicely that food banks can be... Well, this particular one was totally riotous, um, as you can see. And uh, people who worked there had a, a, a good laugh and a jolly good time, uh, as well as sitting in committee and, um, and making lots of plans. Now, this is the kind of stuff, the kind of thing that becomes surplus. So you can see that these packages of cornflakes have got squashed. And if they're squashed, the supermarket can't or won't or doesn't sell them. And so they end up um, being given away. Uh, the other reason for giving stuff away is if it's past its sell-by date, even if it's still edible. I don't know how familiar you are with all the different categories of dates, but um, <coughs> sell-by doesn't mean that something can't still be eaten. In the course of my research, I interviewed a number of managers of supermarkets and wholesalers who said they had big problems juggling, uh, ensuring that customers could find anything they wanted on the shelves, which is what they'd been told from head office to do. They've got to find anything they want when they walk into a supermarket. And the inevitable consequences, they very well knew that they wouldn't be able to sell everything in stock. So where food that can't be uh, sold has to be disposed of, it has to be done in ways which comply not only with health and safety, but also prevent it from going into landfill. So um, food waste can go in a number of different directions. It can go to anaerobic digesters, it can go to be composted, um, it can be processed, heated usually, um, to enable it to be used for animal feed. And so the cost of disposing of surplus is minimised. Indeed, it's recently been argued by some observers that surplus food may itself produce surplus values, which is why there have been a number of hungry people taken to court. Um, this is one report that was in the Daily Mirror of a couple who had been, quote, sealing from Tesco bins at the back of the supermarket. And uh, this one I thought was particularly interesting because this man was prosecuted um, in the public interest for stealing from uh, an Iceland supermarket. But there's a lot of concern about food waste. Indeed, you may have seen petitions on the topic. Uh, this is one that uh, appears all over the place. These kind of pictures, which are meant to be very shocking and make you think about how much food is, is, is going to waste and just rotting away. And supermarkets in particular have been targeted by uh, consumers for wasting large amounts of food. Earlier I considered, so what, what's beginning to happen more and more is that both consumers are demanding and supermarkets are going with the idea that rather than using these other avenues to get rid of their surplus food, it should go instead to feed hungry people. And increasingly, relations between supermarkets and food charities are official. Head offices have sanctioned giving surplus food, and they may even, in fact, they frequently do, drop written contracts to make sure that there's no risk to themselves or their brand. When I started researching the topic of food aid in 2014, I became aware of a number of organisations that were um, collecting food to address the issue of food poverty. 
and the largest of these is Fair Share. This was a picture that I took at the beginning of 2015 in Fair Share's London uh, Deptford warehouse. So you can see it's, it's happening on uh, a very large scale. And there are others as well, including one that some of you who live here in Oxford may be familiar with, the Oxford Food Bank, which actually isn't a food bank, but it's a, an organisation that collects waste and surplus. I'm going to focus, however, on Fair Share because that's what I've done the most work on and um, also because uh, it has relations with some of the other organisations I've been working with. Its motto is fighting hunger, tackling food waste, and it's that, um, the relationship between these two, that I'm now going to talk about. Fair Share has expanded massively uh, in the last couple of years. So um, I did uh, interviews in 2015 and then again last year, and it's uh, changed out of all recognition. And one of the things that it's doing is that it's collecting an awful lot of food from supermarkets. It's taken on additional paid staff and volunteers. And some of this increase has been made possible because of the setting up of a community food programme with Tesco using a piece of modern technology, the Fair Share Food Cloud app. And this is a kind of poster that you might see in a, a Tesco supermarket. So the way the app works is that Fairshare acts as a facilitating agent. Fairshare has a relationship with Tesco. Um, the supermarkets uh, review their stock uh, just before the, the store closes. And then there are charities, food charities, which are linked into Fairshare, which are clients of Fairshare. And the supermarket then sends a text saying nine trays of bakery, six of this, ten of that. And the charity replies yes or no, Y or N. And then somebody from the charity has to go early the next morning and collect whatever the food surplus is. So this means an awful lot more stuff is getting shifted from Tesco stores and it's getting shifted in the direction of organisations working around the area of food poverty. So it brings together those in need, those suffering from food poverty and the food industry, and it's often described as a win-win situation. The food cloud does more efficiently what many food retailers have already been doing. It's a just-in-time method which allows charities to collect surplus food and utilise it as they wish. So is it indeed a win-win situation? dealing with the problems of surplus as well as those of food poverty. Many people argue so, and indeed it appears so tidy and neat that organisations keep popping up, reinventing it. I wonder if there are any problems with this idea. Aside from the obvious one, that this purported solution does not recognise the right to food, it clearly doesn't solve wider problems of poverty, a point which has been made by many commentators. But a few findings from my own research suggest further contradictions. One food bank manager in West Wales, when I asked her, what do you think of the app? Is it helping? She said, oh yes, it's great. But the only problem is, because the stores are now looking really carefully at how much surplus they have at the end of the day, they're being much more careful in their procurement. So paradoxically, we're actually getting less from the stores which supply us than we were before. Now, this fits in very well with what one of the aims that organisations like Fair, Fair Share has, which is that they want there to be less waste produced. But, of course, the end result for the food charities is, uh, is a bit more problematic. 
Another paradox I encountered, um, I interviewed a number of um, Tesco senior staff, um, mostly managers and deputy managers, and many of them were incredibly enthusiastic about the Food Cloud app. They felt that a lot of good could be done in their local communities by the distribution of surplus food. But at the same time, one interview with a food bank manager in a West Wales town, I found that a number of his clients were actually lower-ranking Tesco employees. They needed to come to the food bank because their wages were insufficient. <clears throat> so what about the views of the food poor themselves concerning the ongoing proliferation of food banks and other food-donating charities? Many of them are, of course, grateful to be fed. And in fact, uh, quite often volunteers would describe to me very movingly how people would, would hug them, they would weep, they would say, you know, I never expected to get help and sympathy like this. Um, but that doesn't preclude them from being aware that the food that they are receiving, whether in the form of a food parcel from a food bank or a meal from a charity which uses surplus food, results in their stigmatisation. Furthermore, many clients whom I met at food banks appeared to have internalised this view and they would speak of their shame that they had to claim benefits or visit a food bank, often describing themselves as failures. Aware of this problem, the manager of one London community cafe told me, we're very careful where we source our food. We don't want people who eat here to think they're being given food that is second rate or has been rejected. So we don't buy food from, or we don't get food from organisations which collect surplus food from the food industry, even though it would save us an awful lot of money. Finally, while the topic of corporate social responsibility deserves a lecture of its own, it's sufficient to say here that it's been widely encouraged, not only by the food industry itself, but also by organisations like the FAO, Food and Agriculture Organisation of the United Nations, and indeed by governments of many developed states, which prefer to see issues like environment handled by companies rather than through state regulation and enforcement. So on the one hand, some might view corporate social responsibility cynically as simply a form of PR, designed to mask the fact that the primary object, after all, is profit. But others would maintain that the widespread adoption of CSR policies on the part of private industries helps to ensure that social factors like climate change and food poverty are taken into account. This is because the food industry needs also to satisfy the social demands of its consumers, what some have called reflexive consumers, who aren't just wanting umpteen varieties of whatever on supermarket shelves, but also want to know about other issues to do with sourcing and what they do with their waste. And, of course, this adds to the value of the brand. In a market economy as it's presently organised under late capitalism, there are clearly winners and losers. So in that good society, how may the latter be protected and where is the state in all of this? Under international law, the state is the primary duty bearer for ensuring the progressive realisation of the right to food found in international conventions which in popular parlance means citizens should have enough money in their pockets to buy the food they want. Clearly, this isn't happening in the UK now for many people, in spite of the fact that the UK has ratified several such conventions. Rather, the responsibility both in policy and public perception has shifted to a great extent to the voluntary sector.
While there's been much media discussion of food banks, the responses of governments in recent years have been either to ignore them or to argue that they have increasing numbers of clients because there are increasing numbers of food banks. In other words, supply generates demand. A third trend, uh, which was particularly marked under the coalition government, was to treat them as very good examples of what it was then fashionable to call the big society. But this isn't just about the third or voluntary sector, it's also about the market. The notion of corporate social responsibility actually calls into question the division of labour between business and state, as well as the boundaries between economics and politics. It's increasingly implied that when a company acts as a good citizen, it thereby absolves the state of some of its responsibilities. But if, as many have suggested, there's no such thing as a free gift, we may suppose that such gifts, whether of food or money from companies, philanthropists or foundations, are given with the expectation of rewards of one kind or another. The point, that the, the point is that the problem we're considering here is primarily one of poverty, and this cannot be solved either by food banks or recycling food waste. It has ultimately to be the responsibility of the state. In this regard, it's perhaps worth noting, as an aside, that in the manifestos recently issued by the three main political parties, mention is made of food banks in only two of them, and that very briefly and that these emanate from exactly the same parties as mentioned food banks in their 2015 manifestos. In conclusion then, do food banks and food charities enable people to get back on their feet by acting as emergency support, or do they inadvertently collude, albeit with the very best of intentions, by propping up the existing system and contribute to the social construction of indifference? Does the use of food industry surplus neatly solve the problems of food poverty, thereby constituting a win-win situation? Or rather, does it entrench secondary food markets for second-class people, what a fair share volunteer called rubbish food for rubbish people? At the beginning of this lecture, I asked how anthropologists might approach issues surrounding poverty and hunger in our society. One obvious way is through ethnography, and I've tried to do this in my research on food banks and food aid in two locations. In giving voice to the participants engaged in these activities and examining the structures and ideologies of the organisations involved, I've sought to understand how, as Douglas might have put it, such organisations think. At the same time, I've tried to reveal the interrelationships among the diverse institutions involved. And this too, it seems to me, is very much in the tradition of anthropology. But we also need to seek some answers to the conundrum of poverty and hunger by looking outside the boundaries of our own discipline, as Douglas did in her work. Giving out food is not a, not a radical solution to problems of poverty because it doesn't deal with other needs, including the requirement for cash in a highly monetized economy. It doesn't lead to social change, nor does it lead to redistribution. So we may need to turn to politics, economics and social policy as well as anthropology. How can we then bring back the food poor into the circle? First and foremost, this must be by increasing their incomes. I don't really imagine that there's going to be a return anytime soon of near universal full employment with adequate wages and a functioning social safety net. Or 
for social welfare being viewed as it was originally intended as a form of insurance, or the payment of progressive taxes by all of those legally liable, including companies. Whether it, is it, again, is it possible to change not only government policies, but also public perception and adopt a different discourse, which includes universal rights and entitlements? And if these changes were to happen, would this be a return to what some would see as a previous golden age of the welfare state and others as a tax and spend regime? Or would it be a recognition that society works better when citizens are more, not less, equal and when there's some form of solidarity epitomised by a state which is, after all, there to prevent the Hobbesian war of each against all? I don't pretend to have answers to these conundra, but I'll close by suggesting that they need to be addressed seriously at all levels of our society if we're not to see the situation continuing of a large proportion of our population, including, of course, children going hungry. As Douglas suggested, giving food may be a noble form of almsgiving, but it's not a solution, which rather requires the much harder task of some radical reorganisation. If now is not the moment for thinking about how we, may, how we may do this as we engage in a general election and negotiate our way out of the EU, or, has been said this week, peer over the abyss, then when, if ever, might it be? Thank you for your attention.